Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. I'm Jo Elvin and this is Palace Confidential, your weekly hit of all the latest breaking royal news right here on Mail Plus. Here's what you've got to look forward to on the show today. Meghan for president. We'll discuss one rumour that isn't going away and how the Archbishop of Canterbury's comments to an Italian newspaper saw him caught in the middle of a transatlantic royal row. And as talks of reform dominate discussions at the palace, an historian tells us why any change in royal households is easier said than done. But first, the newly published diaries of Tony Blair's former right-hand man have revealed an alleged snub of the former Prime Minister and his successor Gordon Brown at Prince William's wedding in 2011. Alistair Campbell revealed an extract from his book in which he discusses the really interesting relationship between Buckingham Palace and Downing Street. Sunday, 24th of April, 2011. Emerged that TB and GB, as Tony and Gordon, not going to the royal wedding, quotes, because they're not members of the Order of the Garter, whereas John Major is. Ludicrous. Probably some kind of establishment revenge, but pretty petty and silly. And then Thursday, 28th of April, so four days later, we, that's my mother and I, had our usual argument about the royals. I was feeling more anti than ever as a result of the TBGB non-invitation. Lots of different theories. Charles, because of the hunting ban. William, because TB revealed details of private conversations in his book. Camilla, because she just doesn't like us. Idiotic, whatever. It wasn't getting big play, but it was one of those things that people would remember. Into town to meet Jeremy Haywood, Cabinet Secretary, at the ICA, which was a bit crowded. So we found a hotel nearby and had a couple of hours chatting over stuff. On the wedding snub, he said it was very much the royals. Cameron and Osborne both went ballistic, said it was a bad error, worried that they would get the blame. Look, I said at the time, I thought it was petty, which I still think, actually, as to whether it was sort of establishment revenge. I don't know if I believe that because I still don't really know what the explanation was. I don't know why it happened. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the wedding of, it's not just a prince, it's not just a royal wedding, it's the future king. He sort of felt that when they're drawing up the wedding, the, the guest list, that maybe living prime ministers, you know, maybe, and it's the fact that I think I think it's one of those situations where you kind of feel well it should be one or one or none or all, um, and then I think when the wedding came along, it wasn't just that it was John Major. I think Boris Johnson was there. I think Douglas Heard. I think there were a few other kind of Tory politicians, um, and that made me think mm, there's something maybe a bit more to this than meets the eye. But you know, without knowing for sure. 
who and why and what is very hard of me for me to know. And I think I think at the time I just thought the way things were in our politics at the time, we're out of power. Uh, the Tories are back in. They're calling all the shots, and it, it just it felt like a mistake on their behalf to me. And it's interesting that Jeremy Haywood thought the same, and Cameron thought the same. I think for a while, when Mark Boland was around the scene with Prince Charles, I, I think they, I think they saw their role maybe as sort of opposing what we were identifying as the need for change to the forces of conservatism. Hunting was an obvious one. Um, now, as it happens, the diaries and Tony's book both reveal Tony was never that keen on wasting an awful lot of, as he saw it, political capital on the hunting bill. But it was something that we promised to do. We'd been elected on it and he was, he was going to find a way of doing it. But that was quite difficult. And then I think some of the some of maybe some of the educational issues that were involved in. So it became, I think, yeah, it became tense at times, I think. But, you know, the truth is that in that relationship, I don't know how Boris Johnson handles it, and I think he is trying to smash all sorts of norms, but I think within the balance of that relationship, look, when the Prime Minister goes in to see the Queen, he or she bows or curtsies. I mean, it's, that is the kind of, that's where the balance is. Um, and you have to be very, you do have to be very careful and very sensitive about that. If the royals brief out something critical of government, or if we think that it's being briefed out, um, it's very hard to respond to that. Funny enough, I, I was at a dinner once where Prince William was the guest and there was a Q&A and I asked the question whether when he became king and possibly when his dad became king, whether they would continue the tradition of the monarch never giving interviews. And he said he thought that ship had sailed, which I thought was quite interesting, which means that maybe they will. Then again, I think that, I think you've already noticed with Prince Charles that as he gets closer, possibly to, to, you know, to being king, I think there's been a dialing down of what can even be interpreted as political interventions and so forth. Alistair Campbell's Diaries, Volume 8, Rise and Fall of the Olympic Spirit is out now. Well, joining me to discuss this and all matters royal on today's show are the Daily Mail's Saturday Diary Editor Richard Eden, the Mail on Sunday's Charlotte Griffiths and Royal Commentator Victoria Murphy. Richard, you covered this story for the paper this week, and Alistair Campbell's not convinced by this order of the garter excuse for the for the non-invitation. Is that your reading of it? Yes, it wasn't very convincing, was it? So I remember writing about this snub at the time when I was at the Sunday Telegraph, and it was all very awkward because, you know, Labour figures didn't want to make a fuss about it because they didn't want to sort of damage relations with the royal family. But now we know from Alistair Campbell's book that the then Conservative Prime Minister, David Cameron, was was very worried about it and his Chancellor George Osborne as well, you know, and they made representations about it. Um, I mean, the, the palace explanation was, um, it wasn't very convincing, but they mentioned that Sir John Major was a member of the Order of the Garter, but they also stressed that he was actually a legal guardian to Princes William and Harry after the death of their mother. It's not very widely known, but he did have that formal role. 
So they explained that partly explained his um, invitation. But the fact that uh, an ex-conservative prime minister was invited and not the two Labour ones did really stick out like a sore thumb. Charlotte, you know, considering the number of high-profile people who were invited, this is a pretty bad look for the royals, isn't it? Yes, and especially as um, the initial list of 777 people invited was torn up by William, um, which he spoke about, which shows he did actually have the power to invite. If he desperately wanted Tony Blair at the wedding, he had the power to call that. And um, evidently he didn't want to. And he does hold a grudge, does Prince William. So um, that could be something to do with it. It doesn't bode well for uh, Meghan that he holds such grudges. Um, So, Victoria, tell us what you know about the machinations of such things. Who is in charge of a royal wedding guest list? Well, I know it's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? We all have these issues over who to invite to our weddings. When with the royals, it's kind of magnified on the world stage with loads of extra considerations. But it does depend a bit on how the occasion is designated. So there was a big difference between William and Kate's wedding and the previous comparable wedding, Charles and Diana in 81, which was officially designated as a state occasion. So therefore you would have the expectation that overseas heads of state were represented, that there was a certain um, amount of space automatically made for diplomats. Um, But with William and Kate's wedding, they put the word semi in front of state. So they called it a semi-state occasion. And then suddenly you have a much less clearly defined type of occasion. And they had a lot more flexibility. And as Charlotte said, I was going to mention this, actually, that William did say he was given a list of 777 names of people that he didn't know any of. And he called the Queen and said, you know, do we have to do this? And she said, no, start with your friends and go from there. And that really did kind of set the tone, I think, for the whole day. And they were able to have that flexibility. Charlotte, do you think we can extrapolate from this any political leanings of the royal family? Does this mean they're, you know, not particularly into the Labour Party? I wouldn't say so. I think this is a personal thing between Tony Blair and uh, Prince William because they had a conversation in Balmoral that Tony Blair wrote about in his book. And that is the kind of thing that would incense William. And I think it was less political and more personal. I think I think William just holds the grudge towards Tony Blair. And then after that, it was difficult to invite Gordon Brown and then David Cameron. Hmm. Gosh, don't cross William then. I mean, no. Richard, the other thing that Alistair Campbell was talking about was asking William directly some time ago if he thought as a monarch he would ever give an interview, which is quite unprecedented, you know, is unprecedented. But and William's answer was that the ship has sailed on not giving interviews. What what do you make of that? I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, because, you know, the Queen, as he said, has never given an interview. And, um, you know, as far as we know, I don't, I don't think monarchs in the past have given interviews, although personally, I would have loved to have watched an interview with Henry VIII. Um, but I, I think William was making the point that you know, during his lifetime and that of his father, um, the situation's changed and the media has become more prominent. So Prince Charles has already given an interview to um, Jonathan Dimbleby, for example, and obviously his mother did to uh, Martin Bashir as well. William's given sort of bits of interviews over the years, but nothing, a sort of sit-down interview. But my goodness, doesn't it raise the possibility that William might want to do his own um, Oprah-style interview and uh, (laughs) I'd, I'd love to hear that, his response oh to the extraordinary claims made by Harry and Meghan. Sticking with royals and politics now, as it's been suggested that Meghan Markle 
might want to run for US president. That's according to Tom Bauer, who is writing a biography of her at the moment and says it is likely that she will want to run for office. He also suggests, though, that given that she's rather sensitive to criticism, she may struggle on that count. Now, Richard, you gazed into your crystal ball a little while ago and wrote about Meghan for president, didn't you? It's, it's, it's To Brits, it sounds crazy, but it's not particularly a crazy idea in America, is it? It's so funny. I was rereading this story last night, and I remember at the time um, our editors weren't very keen on it because they thought, come on, this is, this is outlandish, you know. But we had it from a very good source who was an associate of Meghan's, and even after Meghan had started going out with Prince Harry, she had said that her ultimate ambition was, was to be president. Um, so, you know, we wrote this story, but it seems to be, um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's increasingly likely, I would say, and, and what a fascinating prospect it would be. I think she's one of the most self-determining women of our time, and if she wants it, it, it might happen. But Victoria, this raises the spectre of Harry as first man. I mean, it would be absolutely extraordinary if it did happen and totally unprecedented. And, you know, you can go even further and you can say we've got Charles or William as head of state over here potentially in the future. We've got, could we have Meghan as president? Could we have Piers Morgan as prime minister? You know, what would that all look like? Oh, oh God. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Take that back. Yeah. Do you feel like that we are slightly entering the realms of fantasy to a certain extent? You know, I, I would never say never. But I, I don't think that this is something that is, is on the cards in the near future, you know, from anyone I've spoken to seems, doesn't seem to suggest that that is the case. I mean, I think what, what would be interesting about it is the fact that for me, I've always kind of felt that one of the challenges for Harry and Meghan now is to be seen as anything other than in the context of the royal family. You know, everything that they do and their identities are shaped by the royal family. And I do not see how that can ever not be the case. And actually, if she were to become president, that would be a totally different thing. Their legacy would be completely different. Um, so that, that's sort of what I think is very interesting about it. But I, I don't think it's on the cards just yet. Talking of Piers Morgan, um, he did. He was once told by Meghan, she said to him, um, you know, in the future, I either want to be a, um, a journalist like yourself or president of the United States. So, well... <laughs> Well, she could still be keeping both dreams alive. But Charlotte, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, is Tom Bauer, who was saying, well, she would need a very loyal team around her as, as a president. That's, that's not been her strong suit, has it, to, to keep a, a team close? What, what's your view? Well, she's going to, she's very thin skinned, I think, and that's not going to bode well either. And um, she's now got this sort of long list of 13 people who have, uh, who have left her service, as we say, but they, they're calling it the quit list. And if you average it out, it's something like one every three months has, wow. has come on her. And, you know, God knows that political staff are, will stab you in the back, if not the front. And she's very thin skinned. So, she might struggle a bit if she's worried that her staff aren't very loyal um, and she might have to work quite hard to keep a loyal circle around her, like the Queen has done so successfully. She should have asked her uh, grandmother-in-law for a few tips on how to keep staff, I think. So, well, we're sticking with Meghan and Harry now, you'll be pleased to know. Victoria, <laughs> one of Meghan's claims on Oprah was that she and Harry married secretly, privately, three days before the big public global ceremony. Um, but that's been refuted by someone quite significant, hasn't it? 
Yeah, well, recently, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave an interview to an Italian newspaper, and uh, this has gained a lot of traction. Uh, it was quite a wide-ranging interview, actually, very interesting. Uh, I'd recommend looking at it. He talks about cancel culture as well. But um, the comments that have been latched onto are these comments about Harry and Meghan, because he was asked about what she told Oprah. Um, and he said, no, the legal wedding was May the 19th. And his exact words were, I signed the wedding certificate, which is a legal document, and I would have committed a serious criminal offence if I signed it, knowing it was false. So very clear there. He did say that he had a number of private meetings with the couple in the lead up, which he wasn't going to go into details of. Her team did actually clarify that this was a private exchange of vows, not a legal wedding. But that clarification was absolutely needed because people had interpreted what she'd said as it being the marriage. Um, and since then, you know, we've had the marriage certificate dug out, we've had obviously the couple clarifying themselves, and now we have had the Archbishop of Canterbury. So I do feel that we have we have really got to the bottom of when they were married. They were definitely married on May the 19th. But I think it, it's, you know, it's less clear as to why she chose to uh, make the comments in the way that she did. I think what it really showed was she just, legalities aside, she just wanted us to know that she didn't value the main wedding that we all saw and paid for and showered with praise and affection and looked forward to. We, the public, we humble serfs. She, she didn't value that as much as her personal one. And while that's in a way very sweet and touching, it's, I don't know, it's sort of a bit mean to the rest of us who really cared about that day and um, let's face it paid for it yeah I think that's yeah I, I think that seems to be the, the public takeaway I mean Richard this was a top story again on all sorts of news websites including the BBC which is you know something the family are probably wishing would go away now yes I suspect they are um, a bit sick of it tracking on this story so I think they were pleased to be able to change the subject this week when the Queen made her first visit outside Windsor Castle to carry out a public engagement. Um, she didn't travel that far, it was less than 10 miles to Runnymede, and it was to a service to celebrate the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, it was great, she seemed to be on sparkling form and she had a wonderful conversation with an airman and she asked him about being sent to chase the Russians. And this airman replied, that's correct, ma'am, it's a lot of fun for us. So <laughs> That was that was great. It's so it's, great it's great to see the Queen out and about again, not wearing a face mask, I should say. But then she's had both her jabs now and um, was out in the open. So it seemed to be fine. And you can always rely on the Queen to bring a bit of see it from space colour. That's what I love about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, the fallout from Harry and Meghan's Oprah interview is still being felt in those palace walls as they push for a diversity drive and investigate bullying allegations. The historian Adrian Tinniswood knows all too well the inner workings of royal households, and here he is to give us his thoughts on why any change will be much easier said than done. The, the royal household had two functions. One was to, and is to, ease the monarch's path through life, to look after them. But its second purpose is to surround the monarch in a kind of mystique of ritual and pageantry and tradition subtly to enforce the notion that the sovereign isn't like us. Without that magic, the monarchy, the monarchy will cease. The 21st century palace is a very different place in lots of ways. You know, once upon a time, the knight marshal kept order within 12 miles of the sovereign's person. 
well, now there's a, there's a director of security liaison who coordinates and implements all security plans. I mean, Buckingham Palace has a staff gym. It's got a swimming pool. It's got a squash court. It's got a tennis court. Um, there's a choir. There's a book club. There's a 24-hour confidential counselling service for staff. And we might ask why they need a 24-hour confidential counselling staff. I don't know. In spite of all the changes, there is still a Lord Chamberlain, there's still a Lord Stuart, there's still a Master of the Horse, as there were in Elizabeth the first time. There are still women of the bedchamber, there's a keeper of the privy purse, there's a mistress of the robes. And so the, the digital engagement team and its counterparts elsewhere in the household haven't entirely ousted the traditions and rituals that mark out the monarchy as different. There's a fine line between, between preserving that mystique and trapping the royals, I suppose. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about people you know, feeling trapped, about being overwhelmed. That sense of, of, of not being able, not having any personal freedom, I mean, that's always been there. For example, um, the Duke of Edinburgh was a great, a great reformer. He wanted to do all kinds of um, um, things in the royal palaces. He wanted to streamline them. He wanted to have a cafeteria. And people said, you know, yeah, yes, that's, that's fine, Your Highness. Um, I, I don't think it's going to work. Let's just see how we go with the existing shop. And, you know, the, the machinery is very, very difficult. There's a courtier there. There's a private secretary or an assistant private secretary or a whole band of people, press officers, saying, I don't think it's a very good idea, ma'am. A, a courtier of Edward VII put it best of all, I think. He said, Edward VII, the king, loves to forget that he's king as long as nobody else does. And that's it. That's the crucial thing. You know, yes, of course, I'm just like you. I'm just ordinary. But don't you behave as if I'm ordinary. Don't you behave as if I'm just like you, because I'm not. You know, I'm special. There always have been stories about bullying, I think. You know, it happens when you have people in a position of power and they're, they're able to abuse that position. And that's not just about the royal family. You know, I mean, it, it, it happens in almost every workplace I've been in, in one way or another. Some people uh, move on. Sometimes they get better jobs. Sometimes they get fed up. And sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll be shouted at and they'll go off, in, go off in a huff. But one gets the sense that there's an overriding loyalty to the crown. That's not the same as being loyal to the queen. When Edward VIII was um, in the middle of the application crisis and um, Sir Alan Lassells, Tommy Lassells, who was assistant private secretary, refused to support him. And Edward said, you know, but don't you... Know, why, why aren't you loyal to me? And Lassell said, I'm loyal to the crown. And it's not the, same, it's not the same thing. It's not about people. It's about an institution. Adrian Tenniswood's Behind the Throne, A Domestic History of the Royal Household is available in all good bookstores. And just like that, it's the end of another episode of Palace Confidential. I want to thank my guests today, Alistair Campbell, Adrian Tenniswood, Richard Eden, Victoria Murphy and Charlotte Griffiths. But don't fret, there'll be more from us next week right here on Mail Plus. See you then.